episode 1005 of Effectively Wild, the podcast from Baseball Prospectus and Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and my incoming co-host Jeff Sullivan will be with me tomorrow, which means we are down to our last interim guest host. And back in episode 988, I was lamenting how teams are more and more often hiring analytically minded former players, recently retired players to be liaisons or go-betweens between players in the front office and the coaching staff. And I was saying that it was sort of a shame because we are deprived of of these guys in a sense. In, in the past, they might have gone on to be talking heads on TV or podcast guests, but now they're getting snapped up by teams. And after I said that, I got a tweet from Dan Heron, who was just hired as a Diamondbacks pitching strategist. And he said that he is still allowed to talk, even though he is working for the Diamondbacks now. So I made him prove it by coming onto the show. Hey, Dan. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, happy to. So tell us about the job. I know that you can't probably divulge every detail, but can you give us the broad strokes? Well, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I guess the job title kind of says a lot, uh, pitching strategist. Um, it's kind of the job kind of happened, I would say, organically, kind of. I wasn't per se looking out there looking for a job but i had let my agent know actually that you know what kind of job i was looking for if i was to go back to work and um you know i spent last year um just watching baseball on tv which was which was fun mm-hmm. um but you know i felt like i had something to offer and i have uh, what's interesting is i've i've been with eight different teams and especially the last few years bouncing around and i've kind of learned uh, the ins and outs of of trying to get hitters out and what some organizations do really good and what you know some organizations need help with and i kind of have a specific skill in breaking down hitters i mean i i would say my kind of career resume speaks for itself um you know early on in my career things came really easy toward the end of my career things were much more difficult uh you know i had to do a lot of work in order to come up with a game plan of trying to get uh you know major league hitters out with uh, I would say subpar stuff you know my last year I think my fastball averaged in the 85 86 range so it was tough but part of that was kind of fun um, putting together the puzzle of of a major league hitter and figuring out the best way the best possible uh, chance for me to be successful and and areas to to pitch where I was where the damage that would be done would be you know less and trying to minimize slugging percentage stuff like that and I kind of went into my last year really working hard at it and you know I was somewhat successful I think my last year I won you know 12 or 13 games even though wins don't really matter but Mm -hmm. I was out there quite a bit and I was able to you know have like a 360 ERA and still minimize walks have a decent amount of strikeouts and uh you know get hitters out for the most part so I feel like I I kind of want to I wanted to teach pitchers how to do that and help help them do that. Did this job exist, say, a few years ago? Like when you were playing, was there someone you could go to who was sort of a pitching strategist or or a few different people who kind of filled that role together? Or was it just not really there and you were kind of on your own to a greater extent? I would say I was on my own for the most part. But I, with the guys I learned a lot from were actually a guy that I'll be working with this year is a guy like Zach Grinke, who mm-hmm. him and I, we, we spent time together with the Angels and the Dodgers. and. And we were able to, 
you know, work together on the computers, come up with game plans. And he, you know, he, we would bounce ideas off each other in between starts. And, you know, maybe I would ask him his best advice in getting this hitter out. And he would ask me to look at a specific hitter and, and we would go through them and, and, uh, you know, come up with a good game plan. And also like AJ Ellis with the Dodgers helped me out a lot. And there's also an assistant pitching coach with the Chicago Cubs. His name's Mike Borzello, mm-hmm. who is probably the best that I've ever been around and, and putting together these game plans and just, just, it's really just a map. It's a map of, of if you do this, if you do X, you, you're going to give yourself the best chance to get the the hitter out and just, you know, it's basic stuff. I mean, obviously I'm not going to go through every single detail of, of what I'll be doing, but you know, it's just game planning and, and you know, how to start hitters off and finish hitters and stuff like that. So it'll be exciting. And I've already started, you know, working a little bit with the team and, and, uh, you know, I already started kind of trying to get ready for spring training, which is a little bit different. I've never had a job like this, so I'm sure there'll be a lot to learn. And obviously it's a hybrid role, but do you sort of think of it as primarily one thing more than the other? Like, is it primarily front office or coaching or scouting, or is it just not even possible to untangle all of those things? Yeah, it's, I would say it's more front office. Um, you know, when I was talking about this job with the Diamondbacks, one of the, the deal breakers with me at first was having to put on a uniform and going out and, and you know, say, watching bullpens and stuff in spring training. I think that would be difficult. I, I'm so I'm not so far removed from baseball. You know, it's only been a year, a year and a half. So it would be it just feels weird to me to put on a uniform and go out there and coach. I, I never envisioned myself as a coach. Mm-hmm. But so I would say it's more kind of front office. But I would definitely be working with with the guys. I would say probably my majority starting pitchers, and but yeah, I, I see myself. As, I would consider myself more front office than than coach. Coaching is a demanding job for a lot of different reasons. You know, you have to be there. You have to be with the team 183 days a year and make all the road trips. And you know, spring training is a month and a half long, and I won't be with the team you know the entire time. So coaching is a is a different kind of commitment. Uh, mm-hmm. just uh, crazy, you know, moving your family, all that stuff. I wasn't ready for that. So the Diamondbacks really worked with me and kind of what I what I wanted to do, and we made it happen. And I think the it's going to lead to really good things. One of our listeners asked if you had any Zach Greinke stories you could share. I guess you're maybe going to make some new Zach Greinke stories in your new job. But is he the kind of guy who I assume that he – he already looks at all of these things. He already thinks about all of these things, and he's a veteran guy, and he's just sort of cerebral as it is. So do you expect that you can make a, a bigger difference with veteran guys who sort of have their routine already? Like, are there a surprising number of pitchers, even at the major league level, who could improve themselves just by devoting themselves to stats or just examining their own approach or, or whatever it is? Or do you think you could make a bigger impact with minor leaguers, let's say, or rookies? Well, I think, well, first part of your question is with Zach, I think that even last year when I was out of the game, you know, we talked in between starts and, you know, he had uh, some times where he was struggling last year and, you know, he would bounce a few things off of me and I would try to help. But uh, I think that'll be a lot easier this year because I'll be, you know, closer to him. And, um, you know, with him, he breaks down the data just kind of like how I break it down. But it's still nice to have that extra kind of opinion. And even if it's one specific hitter that there, there's a lot of really good hitters in, in the major leagues, a guy, you know, Corey Seager, a guy like that. 
I mean, you're going to look at all the data you want and it's still going to be hard to come up with a way to get them out. So a lot of times it's nice to have someone else's opinion. And that's what I was getting into, like where I said, Mike Borsello, a guy last year or two years ago when I was with the Cubs, I can come up with the best game plan I wanted against a, a hitter, but there was seemingly no way to get him out. And I would go to him and I would say, look, I'm, I'm struggling with this guy. Can you help me out? This is what I got. And then we would put our information together and and come up with the best way to to attack a certain person so with him um, that's kind of how we'll go now with the other major leaguers i think the information is there and a lot of it is just taking the time to go in there and know what you're looking at and you want to be as efficient as possible you can't go in a video room and and look at data for five hours a day you want to be able to go in there and with a purpose. And if you sit down for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, you know, every day or a few days before your starts and start, you know, just looking at the the numbers and putting together the best ways to get guys out, that's the way to go. And a lot of pitchers, they're never taught how to, you know, unfold all this information. So that'll kind of be part of, I guess, my job too, is, you know, just showing guys the basics of the best way that I saw to get hitters out and ways that I'll be showing them during the year to kind of give themselves the best chance to be successful. Mm -hmm. Did you consider at all before you took the job just going completely off the board and doing something non-baseball related? Like, you know, you're you're 36 and 36-year-olds change careers all the time. It's it's not old, in a, you know, by non-baseball player standards and you have some financial security, you could just uh, go out and do something completely different. Did that cross your mind or was it an easy call just because you know you've spent your whole adult life in baseball and you have expertise and presumably you you love it or you wouldn't have done it this long so was that an easy call it was not an easy call the options were I'm, you know obviously getting back into the game would have been the easiest thing for me just yeah. because i have so many relationships with a lot of different gms and and players and stuff so yeah, you know, what crossed my mind is starting a podcast. I would be competing against you, so that wouldn't that wouldn't be good. Um, but uh, you know, you can only tweet so many things, and I, you know, I, I take pride in providing some decent Twitter content every once in a while, and I. I've obviously had to scale that back a little bit, but yeah, you know, I I would say I wasn't looking for a job, but being retired at 36 is definitely something different. And, uh, you know, I got to take my kids to school every day and stuff that I've missed a, a lot being gone, uh, you know, playing in Miami and Chicago my last year or playing in Washington in 2013. I, I missed a lot of things. So it was nice and it's been nice uh, being home and I'll still be able to be home quite a bit, even with my new job. So um, that was also part of uh, being able to take this job is being able to stay at home. But in regards to other career things, uh, no, I never really thought too much. You know, I mm -hmm. like I tweeted out when I first retired. I I had a little phase where I was uh, playing my old Nintendo games, so I beat mm -hmm. Zelda and, and Punch Out <laughs> and. Uh, I was ready for the next challenge. <laughs> Those are pretty big challenges. I don't think I ever beat Zelda. I, I got it when I was like six or seven and I was mm. totally confused. And uh... Well, the, the, <laughs> the easy part now is that you could look on YouTube or something, you know, back Back in the day, we would have our uh, yes. Nintendo Power Strategy magazines. Guides, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we would have to do it that way. So 
it was a lot easier, but you know, beating Tyson was probably harder. Yeah. So when this job was announced, you jokingly tweeted that part of your job would be teaching young pitchers how to tweet, or maybe that was not entirely a joke. I don't know. I'm I'm curious, and one of our listeners also asked about the training that players get in answering media questions and how do they say so much without saying anything. And I always thought that it would be fun to be like the the go-to player in the clubhouse who writers know they can get good quotes from. Like I never, mm-hmm. I, I never really like daydreamed about being good at baseball because that just wasn't really in the cards. But I always thought if I could, if I could just be like the go-to guy in the clubhouse who would give the good quotes, that'd be fun. That's a very <laughs> writer sort of <laughs> dream to have about baseball. But, yeah. But I bet that if I were actually in that situation, I would do that for about a week, and then there would just be so many questions, and they'd all start to sound similar. And it would be really tempting to just start giving the cliche answers instead of actually thinking about it, just so you can get out of there and go home. So what kind of training did you get or whether it was like formal training by the team or just advice from a teammate or how does that work these days? And and what was your philosophy when you were answering questions? Like, were there times when you would just say, I could give a good answer to this, but I got to (laughs) go. So I'm just going to give the boring one. Yeah, see, I think I got better at that as as my career went on. And I, I really prided myself the last few years, even when I was struggling. I would say it began 2013 with the Nationals. I really took a lot of pride in being giving the honest answer to media. And I felt like they if if you were able to speak to them honestly and give them the non-cliche answers, they would be better to me. They would write a little bit you know, if you had a bad game, they wouldn't be as harsh, you know, and if you had a get if you had a good game, they would, you know, prop you up even more. So but they also ask you more questions, probably, right? They do ask you more <laughs> so. questions. But, you know, I, as a starting pitcher, that that's it's it was probably a little bit easier for me because you primarily talk the day that you pitch. Obviously, you have to you have to talk, you know, the, the night that you pitch and you'll never talk the day before you pitch. It's kind of the unwritten rule of, a, of starting pitching. So mm-hmm. you never talk the day before you pitch. And, you know, there's, it leaves a couple days in there where, you know, media guys would come up to, come up to me and ask me a few questions. But, you know, if it was something that I couldn't give an honest answer with, with uh, some decent content in it, I just wouldn't even answer it. So I always pride myself in, in giving a good answer and an honest answer. You know, I think media too appreciates when a player shows a little bit of vulnerability, when, when they show that they know they're not perfect or, uh, they don't deflect blame onto others. I think people appreciate that when you, when you take the blame and you can stand up and give an honest answer. So I tried to do that the last few years. I think I did it pretty well, and I've always have a, I had a really good relationship with with uh, writers from all different cities and, and places. Do you think most players are suspicious and wary of reporters or are they just, it's tedious to answer the questions all the time? Because I know that like, you know, I guess there are some writers who are looking to write some sort of gotcha article and have a quote that makes the player look bad. But I think that's definitely the minority of writers. I know, you know, whenever I'm in a clubhouse interviewing a player, that's never in my mind at all. I'm just, you know, looking for answers to some hopefully substantive question and I'm not out to to get anyone. But is that what players worry about, that they'll slip up and say the wrong thing and suddenly the, the writer will make them look worse than they are? Or is it more just the, the time commitment and the barrage of questions? I think so. I think when when you start, when you're given an interview and you start talking, 
and you maybe say a little bit too much, mm-hmm. it, it might be too late. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, once you give, once you give that interview, you know, and there's been times where I thought I said too much. There's been podcasts I've been on where I thought, man, I, after the fact, Hey, maybe I could uh, edit out something, yeah. but the, there's no worse feeling than saying too much. And then the media leaves your locker and you think to yourself, I, you know, I don't like what I just said. So mm-hmm. I think once a player does that, they're going to kind of put their guard up and that's where you get all the cliche uh, answers and stuff. And I think that, but I think that media, they really appreciate the honest answers. And you get a guy like even Bryce Harper, he's a guy I feel like, you know, some people like him, some people don't, but I think that he gives a pretty good, honest answer to to most questions. And sometimes he probably does say too much, but I think that media and I think that fans appreciate that. And I don't think that the players really care too much. I mean, I don't think he would ever really call out someone or, or something like that. So I just think that people appreciate an honest answer, you know? Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone try to teach you how to talk to the media, either in a, a formal way or just, you know, veteran giving you tips? Mm, no, not really. But I got better at it. I, I mean, I gave plenty of cliche answers, especially early on in my career. I didn't I didn't care about giving an answer, an answer to a question that had some substance to it. Mm-hmm. I just didn't care. And toward the end of my career, it, it came to the point where, I, you know, I pitched six innings and the seventh inning would go by, then the eighth inning would go by, and the ninth inning would, would be happening. And I'd be thinking to myself, okay, let's see, what can I talk about or what do I want to talk about, you know, after the game? I would be thinking during, you know, at the, at the end of the game, I'd be thinking, what do I want to talk about? What do I want to bring up to make sure that I give an answer with some, you know, good substance that people would appreciate? Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about on the show about whether baseball players are funny. <laughs> Just, you know, like whenever a baseball player does something funny, like uses careless whisper as his walk-up song or whatever, it seems like 10 other players do the same thing and then it's not funny anymore. And you see the same sort of pranks over and over, like being mm-hmm. in clubhouses for as long as you were. Did you find that players were funny when they were trying to be funny like you know obviously they're they're funny unintentionally at times but are they do they have refined senses of humor did they get your jokes Ooh, that's a tough one um (laughs) i would say for the most part well you know i think the the other thing is you get a clubhouse with 25 guys there's going to be a language barrier too with probably 10 of the guys so (laughs) you know the jokes aren't going to fly with some guys but guys get the reputation of just uh, of being, I wasn't outwardly, you know, I wasn't a prankster. It took me a long time to feel comfortable in a clubhouse to to be able to joke with people. I think what, especially like getting traded and stuff. You know, say the last year with the Marlins, uh, I I was getting comfortable with the Marlins to the point where I could joke with guys and mess around, and people understood my sense of humor. And then you get traded, or I, I got traded, and you know, going to a team like the Cubs, I had to be pretty quiet, and I didn't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers. I couldn't joke with guys, and it takes time to to build the rapport in order to be able to to mess with guys. But I mean, geez, I've seen some really funny guys. I mean, I'm just you know, even with the language barrier, a guy like Juan Uribe with the Dodgers. I mean, he was hilarious, and yeah, um, you know, I just I, he story a uh, story comes to stories come to my head about you know in the clubhouse just you know him messing with guys and he had some pretty good well him and what was it the ryu hunjin ryu uh-huh. they were like somehow they became best friends and I don't, <laughs> n- neither of them spoke english very well but <laughs> somehow they became best friends and that, they were uh, they were a pretty good uh, duo are there a lot of guys who are funny when you're their teammate but 
the outside world doesn't know they're funny because, you know, whatever, they're not funny in interviews or they don't show off that side of themselves when they're talking to reporters or when they're on the field or whatever, but they're sort of sneaky funny in the clubhouse. Oh, there's a lot of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that would be, you know, I would consider myself more of like an introverted personality where I'm not going to be, it's, it's not, my jokes aren't, wouldn't be like, ha ha funny where yeah. I would, I almost, I really do have to be comfortable with someone to be able to, to joke with them. And I think that's the case for a lot of guys. And yeah, I, I never particularly got along with the loud, obnoxious, uh, funny guys and the guys that try too hard. I always appreciated someone that could, uh, kind of joke a little bit more quietly and yeah. and uh I, i'm more of a dry humor type of guy you know <laughs> yeah does anyone come to mind that you can remember as sort of just a under the radar funny guy oh geez uh <laughs> i'm a little bit far removed now but um <laughs> yeah. you know like we talked about earlier like zach no one would really think he seems so serious but mm-hmm. we've laughed a lot we've met uh once or twice this off season and you know, he's he's a pretty good guy and I don't know. I'd have that's kind of tough, but I, yeah. I had a good relationships with a lot of guys, and and uh, I don't know. I wouldn't. Uh, I'd have to think about who who made me laugh in particular. Yeah. Well, if you think of anyone, well, maybe I'll end. get back. Oh, maybe yeah. I'll get to back. <laughs> I, maybe I'll look through my text messages. And get back. <laughs> yeah. And since you just brought up trades a minute ago, someone asked me to ask you about what I guess at the time would have been called the Mark Mulder trade, although maybe now it would be called the Dan Heron trade. At the time. I mean, that that was kind of one of the most momentous trades of that decade and, and maybe in retrospect, one of Billy Bean's best moves. And how does a player evaluate a trade that he is involved in himself? Like, is it hard to be objective when you're looking at that at the time? Are you saying, you know, like I'm people were writing at the time, you know, maybe Heron can be close to what Mark Mulder is, you know, Heron's minor league numbers were really good and maybe he can just replace him. I mean, were you looking at it at the time and thinking this is lopsided one way or the other, or do players tend to overrate themselves when they're involved in trades and say, you know, like whichever team got them is getting the steal. Well, I've been traded a few times. That one, that one caught me off guard. The first one, I would say my reaction to that one was at the time, Mark Mulder was like a superstar. So yeah, um, getting traded for him was kind of flattering. And then also, but it kind of put a lot of pressure on me because in the deal, I was the only starting pitcher going back to the A's, so yeah. um, it felt like I was going to try to fill his role. And Tim Hudson, I don't, I think Tim Hudson got traded either a little bit before or a little bit after that. But mm-hmm. so they had kind of a clean house, and I knew that that would be the first year where I would be able. That was 2005. I was going to be able to go in and be a full-time starting pitcher, which I had always dreamed of. I didn't ever know if I was ready for it. Uh, 2003, I was not successful i think it was three and seven with about a five era 2004 i came up i had one start got crushed and then went in the bullpen and ended up being pretty successful and then 2005 i remember going to to the a's and billy Bean telling me that he was going to put me out there no matter what and he meant it because i started my year in 2005 and i was one and seven with i don't even know what my era was and i remember having a talk with barry zito and he really helped me out mentally just uh keeping my mind right and i turned that season from one and seven to ten and seven and finished i think 14 and 12 or something around there and after that uh never really had 
I mean, I struggled, but never like I did at the beginning of the year. So that was the, probably the time where I put the most pressure on myself just because I hadn't established myself as a big league player. I didn't know if I was I going to be as I, I didn't know if I had the capability of of making 34 starts, throwing 200 innings. I didn't know if that was in me. I mean, I, I, I just didn't. And, you know, I've said it before on in other places. I it's when I was playing baseball in high school, all I wanted to do was was get a college scholarship. And then I was in college, all I wanted to do was get drafted. And when I got drafted, all I wanted to do was make it to the big leagues. I had never thought so far along to like being an effective big leaguer for you know 12 or 13 years or whatever it was. Yeah. And that was just, what, a year or two after Moneyball. Uh, was there any sense at the time, any awareness that you know you were going to a team that was looking at players a different way or doing things differently or were you at all interested in that or was that just kind of too early in your career for you to be paying attention to that sort of thing i would say the biggest things about getting traded the a's were being able to wear white cleats and um (laughs) i was encouraged to grow my facial and and hair out as long as i could so that was that was more of what i was into i had no idea about moneyball uh I knew that the A's kind of had a reputation to like their hitters wanted to walk a lot. That's uh-huh. basically all I knew, you know, yeah. and they didn't like when pitchers walked guys. And that's kind of as far as it went. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of hitters, you faced 10 of the hitters on this year's Hall of Fame ballot in major league games. And uh, at this time of year, a lot of columnists will start writing about whether guys were feared or how much they were feared or who was feared or not feared the most. And sometimes they'll quote players or sometimes they'll just seem to make it up depending on how they feel that day, I guess. So since you actually faced these guys and to refresh your memory, Bagwell, Bonds, Vlad Guerrero, Jeff Kent, Posada, Sosa, Manny Ramirez, Ivan Rodriguez, Gary Sheffield, Larry Walker. And you faced these guys like at all different points of their careers. And, you know, you faced Walker once. So maybe not not the, the strongest memories for some of them. Mm-hmm. But, but if you had to sort of rank them by intimidation or fear or, or just name the, the guys who you were most afraid to face, who would you have close to the top of that list oh man well i would the one and two would be bonds and sheffield for sure yeah. um uh vlad guerrero would probably be third uh-huh. um i mean i guess I'm, I'm trying to think of a quick quick stories about each i had tweeted a bobblehead that i had uh of barry bonds he he hit a 719th homer off me and it was on a 3-0 pitch and i'll never forget it because i took a lot of pride in not having given up a home run to barry bonds i think this was 2005 uh-huh or 2006, not sure, and I had faced him a few times. I actually faced him in my Major League debut when I was with the Cardinals in, yeah. in 2003. So, uh, yeah, you, um, t- you told that story to, to Jonah, yes, I remember? I, yeah. <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> but I, I was always so happy that I never gave up a homer, a homer to him, and it was a 3-0 count, and for some reason I thought that he wouldn't, he wouldn't swing at it, and I laid one in there, and he crushed it, and that's the only time he ever got me. And I, think, and I struck him out probably two or three times, and every time I struck him out, he wasn't happy with the call. It was always looking. <laughs> yeah, um, two Ks but, uh, and uh, 12 at-bats, 17 plate appearances. Yeah. yeah. There, there was one strikeout. I kept a, a highlight reel of a few strikeouts or a few like good outings on, on like my phone or iPad or something, and striking him out was on there because it was i was pretty badass back in the day when i was throwing like 97 mile hour front hip two seamers and i got him on one 
in uh, in San Francisco when I was when I was with the A's and I was like I was like laughing when I was running off the mound. It was pretty cool. So <laughs> yeah. that was a good one. But uh-huh. uh, Sheffield, I mean, I faced him kind of I think toward the end of his career and he did great against Sheffield. I mean, he he was splits in the dirt. Yeah. I, if I ba- <laughs> if I could bounce a split in the dirt, he'd swing at it. But he, it was tough. Always tough facing him because he was all over the plate. He was right on top of the plate and. So if you threw a fastball away, it was almost like you were throwing a fastball right down the middle. But typically when a guy's on the plate, they want the ball close to them. So that's uh, it was always scary going in on him just because he was big and he waggled the bat back and forth. And, you know, he'd get right in there. He'd I mean, I remember him staring at me and, you know, throwing fastballs inside. And I, I remember several times me throwing fastballs. I mean, he was right on the plate and I'm throwing him on the black and he – this was back when I was throwing, like I said, like 95, 96, and I'd throw 96 on, on the black inside, and he'd turn on it and rip it, like foul over the third base dugout and just just crush it. And it just <laughs> – you just – there wasn't a fastball. I mean, he saw it, and he was he was ripping at it. So, But, yeah, I did pretty well against him. I, I would bounce a split, and he, had, he was pretty vulnerable on that. As long as I got it there, I was pretty safe. But Did that make him less – scary after you'd gotten him out a bunch of times not really because i had to get to two strikes first that was yeah. that was the hard part once i got to two strikes i was all right but yeah no he was scary he yeah. was scary i loved watching then, him he was scary just watching from home and i always yeah I, I always thought like everyone always mentions that that he was so quick and he would pull everything foul and i always thought like at some point he would slow down enough that all of those fouls would be fair and he would be like even better but i don't yeah. think that that really Really happened but he was you know he was really good right up until the end god he was terrifying and the, like <laughs> vlad guerrero too another guy like no he i i would say i struggled with him what well, do you i don't know if you have numbers yeah uh, uh yeah vlad hit you pretty well he had he had like a, a thousand thirty six ops in in 45 plate appearances yeah i remember too one time i i threw at vlad on purpose and he was like the nicest guy in the world and i forget what happened i was with the a's he was with the angels and I think the previous day guys were hit or someone got hit and broke their hand or something like that. And I, like Vlad came up, two outs, nobody on in the first inning. And I think I threw and I threw and I missed him like twice. And I ended up walking him. And I ended up when I, I, I just remember how scared I was to hit him on purpose. And I actually ended up throwing behind him, but I was actually OK with it. I was OK with not hitting him and just <laughs> letting everyone know that I was trying to hit him. It was almost better because. He's another guy. He's bigger than you think. His lower half was gigantic. And yeah. he, I, the problem with him was I you could throw a split in the dirt and it didn't matter. He would still <laughs> scoop it out and, and, and rip it. And you, I always just tried to approach him like when he came up to bat, I just think he's not going to walk. No matter what I what, no matter what I throw, he won't walk. So just be careful the whole time. But then you end up what happens is you you get 2-0 and you end up having to come in into him because you're just you're being so careful so yeah um, no, I, yeah he was he was pretty tough but all those guys in that list I, I forget the rest of the list but yeah well you didn't put Manny in the top three but Manny wore oh, you out he, wait, wait, Manny, wait was he on the list Manny was yeah Manny's on the list <laughs> okay no Manny hit 500 was, against you <laughs> Manny okay Manny Ramirez him, him Adrian Beltre and Grady Sizemore are the, the yeah. my three nemesis um <laughs> I would the the one that stands out for Manny. Well, there was a couple that stand out. He came to the Dodgers in I think that was 2008 or 9, whenever that trade was, and he single-handedly carried them and 
and broke our heart with the Diamondbacks. And I remember him hitting a few homers. But the one homer that sticks out off me uh, was it was on my birthday in Fenway Park. I think it was 2005 or six, and I was winning, I believe, one nothing in like the seventh inning, and he hit a two-run homer on my birthday, um, to and I lost two to one. And I remember walking home after the game from Fenway Park. That was one of the cool things about Fenway is you could walk from Fenway yeah. back to your hotel. And I was just thinking, I just can't, I can't. How how can this have happened? I was <laughs> dominating on my birthday. And, you know, Manny crushes me and I had to, you know, of course, make the phone calls after the game to my wife, to my dad and, you know, talk about the game. Mm -hmm. Well, so when you face a guy that many times and he hits 500 against you, you know, obviously he's one of the best hitters of all time. So it's not a bad guy to to have struggled against. But when you have that history with a guy, do you believe beyond all doubt that he has some sort of edge against you that you faced him a lot, but it's 46 plate appearances, which the stats would say means almost nothing in terms of projecting how you're going to do against that guy. So do you believe that if you had been able to face Manny, you know, a hundred more times somehow with the same skill level between you, that he would have been better against you than he was against the typical guy? Or was it just sort of you know, random that he happened to to get you on those times that he faced you? No. If I would have faced him 100 more times, you would have had 50 more hits for sure. <laughs> um, there was no way. I, I threw him everything. I mean, I wasn't as good as uh, – as good as at scouting hitters back then, but I, mean, I would go, you know, cutters off the plate and he'd line them into right field. And uh, I would try to get to, I would use my split early in the count and go fastball late in the count. It didn't matter. Um, it, nothing mattered. And the thing with, with Manny was his eye was so good. And you, you yeah. would, you would go a few inches off the plate with your fastball and you'd get into bad counts because you couldn't get him to chase anything. And then, you know, you get to one, one and I throw a, like a really good split just below the zone. He takes it and it's two one and then my options are limited. So he was just so good at getting in, into good counts and it was, it was just impossible. And there was no, there was just nothing I could do against him. Yeah. And it, a lot of, I think at the end of my career, I just would go to like my fourth pitch, the pitch that he would think that I would throw the least, like my curveball. And I would just go curveball, 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 just to give him a different look, but nothing matters. Do <laughs> you think like there was something about you that was just it aligned well with his strengths like I mean I'm sure a lot of pitchers who faced him felt like they were sort of helpless just because he was so good but you were much better than the average pitcher during that time and he was much better than the average hitter against you so was it just like something about your arsenal was not well suited to his strengths do you believe or or could it just be i guess that you know he happened to i don't know like be in the zone on the days he faced you or just put good mm -hmm. swings on your pitches or, or whatever i would say more the first thing you said where like my arsenal just matched matched up with his strengths and uh -huh. it's just weird how, how baseball is and no matter what i would do i i couldn't get him out but take a guy like miguel cabrera even my even at the end of my career when i was throwing 85 88 i felt confident that i can get him out i'm not 100 percent sure what my numbers were against him but i know they were pretty good and it's I think a lot of it too is mental. Like Manny knew, Manny just knew going into a bat that he saw me good, and I knew that I didn't want to face him. And so part of it is the the mental aspect of it. But yeah, you know, it's just weird how baseball works. Like 
you know, facing Beltre, I, I just knew I had no chance. But like I said, facing a guy like Miguel Cabrera, I, I seemed to get him out okay. I don't know why. Or like a Dustin Pedroia. I, when, I, when I faced him, not that he was an easy out or anything, but I just felt really confident that my that my arsenal matched up with him and I would be able to get him out. But, you know, face a guy like Grady Sizemore, who was better than people remember, yeah. but, you know, just there was nothing I could do to get him out. What about Bagwell? Because speaking of guys who just looked scary at the plate and, you know, by the time you were facing him, he was maybe a, a little bit diminished, still a, a good hitter. It was early in your career and you did well against him in the nine times that you faced him. But he looked pretty intimidating the way that he would stand at the plate and just the size of him and the ferocity of his swing. Mm-hmm. I think what the common thing with a lot of these hitters is them being on top of the plate. You get yeah. these massive guys that stand all over the plate and it just feels like there's nowhere you can go. Yeah. A lot of these guys had the like protectors on and the gear and everything that makes exactly. them even bigger. Like, so you go like, like the few people that we've talked about, although Vlad was kind of far off the plate. Yeah. Uh, but you know Bagwell, Bonds, Sheffield. These these guys are right on top of the plate, and there was nowhere to go. You, like I said, when I was facing Sheffield, you, you felt like when you're throwing a fastball away that it would be right down the middle. So then I would set my sights a few inches further outside. I throw the ball there, and it's ball one, and it's just it sets you up for trouble. The place to go is you probably got to run the ball in on their hands but that's it's scary doing it to these guys but no Bagwell was he I faced him early enough in my career what I I didn't even know what I was getting myself into facing him uh, yeah. you know I don't I don't remember too much about him but it was good I'm glad to hear I was uh, successful or you know another another guy that was weird too is like Frank Thomas uh-huh. he stood way off the plate so it looked like you had so much room to to throw him outside but he would stand way off the plate and dive, and he used like a 35-inch, 36-inch bat, and he could reach pretty much anything. So he would almost dare you to throw him a fastball away because that was just like right in his wheelhouse. Yeah. Well, the guy who had more at-bats against you than any other hitter is a future Hall of Famer, Ichiro, and you did incredibly well against him. You held Ichiro to a two twenty nine batting average and a two fifty on base, and this is, you know, during a time when he's like hitting three thirty every year. So that's kind of insane. <laughs> how did you mm-hmm. how did you do that? Oh, I let I let Ichiro know too. When I was on the Marlins, <laughs> I told him I told him that I, I I owned him pretty good and he he would laugh about it. But you know, with him it was different. I you go into I would go into an at bat and think that he's swinging. So always remember whenever I was going to throw a pitch, just assume that he was going to swing at that pitch. So, um whether it be a cutter that I would throw, I would if say if I was throwing a cutter inside, I would probably want to start it more like inner third than inner half and i would try to run it in off the plate and try to get it to pull it foul he was a guy too that he didn't i knew that he didn't want to walk Ichiro, he wanted his hits even even late in his career even you know last year or two years ago you get to 3-1 Ichiro wants to swing the bat he does not want to walk so i would try to use that against him and not panic when i'm not in a in a pitcher's count if it was 1 something like that yeah. I wouldn't panic. I would still throw him a you know a good quality pitch. I wouldn't just lay it in there and 
You know, with him it was weird too. You get I would always try to get the left fielder to play a little bit in, and the infielders would always be in. And I, he was one of the few hitters too where I would elevate with some success. But yeah, it was I, I another guy when I when he came up to bat, even though he hit three thirty or whatever all those years, I felt like I was going to get him out. Yeah, and you mentioned. Beltre, yet another future Hall of Famer, I would think. Yes, and, and he, he had he had, really he had Hall numbers. of Fame numbers against you. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. I would I would joke where I would say I'd be better off just stepping off and throwing the ball into the gap and giving him his double. That would <laughs> just save everybody some time. <laughs> so one of the listeners asked about. Uh, he said that he assumes that most big leaguers even the pitchers were the best hitter at some point on their team whether it was little league or middle school or high school or is that true in your experience and was it true for you and when did you feel like you were done as a hitter or you you could just (laughs) retire as a hitter and not ever have to do that again hey i hit 365 or something in in 2010 yeah (laughs) and i'm a career 200 hitter yeah that's good Um, yeah, one more at bat, and I would have been 199. So um, I took a lot of pride in my hitting. But I, yes, I was always the best hitter on my team. Uh-huh. In in college, I DH'd a lot, and I would bat, you know, third, fourth, or fifth, or something like that. Uh, never hit for too much power, but I was always a pretty good hitter. I was not blessed with speed, so that always held me back. But yeah, I, growing up, I was the guy that always played shortstop and pitched a little bit, and you know, I, I always loved hitting. And even when I went to college, the big reason I went to Pepperdine out of high school was because they were going to give me the chance to hit and pitch, which I always loved hitting. So mm-hmm. um, I had some opportunities to go to other schools, but it would just be exclusively exclusively pitching. And I never see I never saw myself as a major league pitcher in high school. So uh, I wanted I wanted to hit and have fun in, in college. Yeah. We get a lot of weird hypothetical questions about pitchers hitting and hitters pitching and, you know, like who would who would have the upper hand if the typical hitter had to pitch and the typical pitcher had to hit? Who would have the upper hand in that matchup? Is it more common to have a a pitcher who's good at hitting than a hitter who's good at pitching? I would say it it would be more common for a hitter to be good at pitching Uh just because Hitting is is really, really hard. I mean, not that pitching isn't, but guys, a lot of position players mess around with, you know, sliders or curveballs. And you even see when what's crazy is when a position player goes out and pitches in a, you know, 14 to two blowout or something. I remember like Drew Butera, he'd go out and yeah. he would just, he'd be throwing like 86, 87, throw a little curveball and then boom, 95. And mm-hmm. it's just, that was always amazing to me. Just, I think you see it more and more. I think you can see more and more hitters turn into pitchers rather than pitchers turn into hitters. And I think you're seeing a guy. I think I was just reading about, isn't it Bethancourt with uh, yeah, uh-huh. but the Padres. Yeah, I mean, I saw some report on how he's starting to pitch, and he was, you know, sitting 93 or 95. And mm-hmm. I, I could see. I, I just think that that's more realistic. Uh, a hitter becoming a pitcher because. If a guy can't hit, I mean, why not give him a shot? Maybe they're throwing hard and then you develop a second pitch and they could be a reliever or something like that. I just think the the reverse of that is just too difficult. Mm-hmm. 
Do you have any thoughts on the whole PED stigma of that era and, you know, how some guys on this ballot kind of get penalized because they were using something or they were probably using something and you faced some of them most likely at a time when they were using something and in theory that put you at a disadvantage? Do you hold that against anyone? Did you at the time? Do you in retrospect? Do you care? Was it just so widespread at the time that you don't feel like you can hold anyone accountable or punish them for it later? Mm, That's a tough question. Uh, (laughs) Without getting myself into too much trouble, I would say that what was frustrating to me was like a known user of, of PEDs that would be really successful off me. I, I might as well say, cause I had tweeted about it a yeah. while back, but like a guy like Marlon bird mm-hmm. who he got popped a couple times and I have nothing against him personally, but facing him after a suspension or two, or even looking back at how um, he was so successful off me. And then it came out that he did, whatever PED he did uh, multiple times and got suspended, I think for a year or I don't know what his ban is now. But I think for me as a pitcher who was clean, obviously, it was frustrating giving up homers to guys that were that were known users or, or had ad- admitted to it or had been busted for it. And just because uh, you know, the playing level wasn't fair for me. And I was never really tempted to do anything like that, though. So I kind of came up at the end of it, too. I mean, I faced yeah. the the Sammy Sosa, who mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know if it, if he's done it or not. But obviously, there's a lot of speculation. So mm-hmm. um, guys like that. And I kind of came up at the, the end of, of it. So it sucked giving up homers to guys that, that were using. But um, looking back now, I don't, I don't really hold it against them. I have nothing. I mean, I, I don't know who was doing it, but I know a lot of people were. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to, to pinpoint guys. I mean, I remember in 2003, my first year in the big leagues, I remember taking a drug test and they said that you know, this was the first testing. And if, a, if, if it came out where X percentage, I think it was like five or 10% yeah. of, of people tested positive that they would start testing the next year. So whatever whatever that percentage was, they tested positive for because the yep. testing started after that. Mm-hmm. Right. We talked not long ago on the show about what the best baseball highlights would be. Like if you knew that you were going to be a generic player, like you weren't going to be a superstar, what the coolest things you could do on a field would be. And, you know, it was like some stuff that was like actual performance based, like hit a home run that goes out of the stadium or something. But it was also just sort of some some sillier stuff like, you know, escape a crazy rundown or or whatever, like, you know, the minor leaguer who ran through a wall and everyone watches (laughs) that highlight a million times. It was like inspired by the the Bo Jackson career who, you know, he wasn't the most distinguished baseball player, but everyone remembers him forever because he, you know, jumped on the wall to make a catch or he had a crazy throw or whatever did you have any moment that stands out to you in that way like i don't know not not necessarily i just the biggest game of your career or anything but like a a little moment that you think about often i guess other than striking out barry bonds which you've already (laughs) mentioned but or something that you always kind of wanted to do whether it was like as a pitcher or as a hitter and you kind of always had it in the back of your head and Maybe you got to do it and maybe you didn't. Well, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is how exhilarating it is to hit a home run. Um, I hit two. The first one was off Bronson Arroyo. Uh And that was a a good one. It was in Cincinnati. It was like front row. But 
The second one I hit, my la- the last one I hit, was off Chris Carpenter in in Bush Stadium. I believe it was a two to two game in like the sixth or seventh inning. Mm-hmm. So we took the lead three two. That was a, just an amazing feeling. It, it's just it's just different. I had experienced everything pitching kind of, but just hitting a home run like that was was really cool. The feeling off the bat is like you swing and you don't you don't even feel the ball hit the bat because you just connect it's so perfect that it just comes off the bat and being a pitcher you just kind of don't you're not I wasn't sure like if is it going to go out is it going to be a fly ball is it going to be 20 rows deep I I just didn't I didn't know how to judge it and you know it went out pretty comfortably so so that was a I would say that that was probably one of the my favorite moments and a moment that I would say that I never got to experience that I would say probably a no hitter or a perfect game or something like that Mm -hmm. um I don't think I ever took one past the fifth or sixth inning at the most i think i had like five and two thirds one time later in my career which is crazy you would think that all all i think i started how many games i don't even know 300 400 something like that 25 2400 innings you would think that one time everything would work out and they would just hit the ball at everybody you know (laughs) yeah and that just that's it never even got close um so i guess one thing i i wished i would have felt was just the feeling of having like a no hitter or a perfect game through eight and running out there for the ninth inning to try to get you know, three outs in a row. I mm-hmm. think that's one thing that that I would really have loved to to feel. I guess maybe you were around the plate too much to to keep guys from getting singles, right? Like you you had the lowest whip in the major leagues one year, like the the fewest base runners allowed mm-hmm. per inning. But I guess that was mostly because you weren't walking anyone at that point in your career, and maybe that made it hard to be really stingy with hits yeah i mean i guess so um i don't know is it kurt Schilling? i don't know if kurt Schilling ever threw i one time i i think in oakland we were Schilling was with the uh the red sox and he had one two outs in the ninth inning and it got broken up i think mm-hmm. by by shannon stewart if i if my memory is good i don't know i'm sure that yeah. one of our, our yeah, listeners I just, will. <laughs> just googled it and i see the i see the highlight yeah 2000 yeah, 2007 shannon yeah, stewart. i just thought that was that was so nuts and then the, there was another one i think it was michael waka in st louis against the nationals and i think two outs in the ninth inning and Ryan Zimmerman hit a ground ball that went off of his glove and that broke it up, I I think. And that's just I couldn't imagine the feeling of that happening two outs of the ninth inning. And maybe it's maybe it's better I never took one in the ninth <laughs> inning now that now that we're talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Schilling ever had a no hitter either, which uh, yeah. he's maybe similar. Yeah, and he has he has one of the highest like like strikeout to walk rates ever. Uh-huh. Okay, well, we can wrap up with a, a couple quick uh, business of baseball-related questions. Since you were a, a free agent a few times, someone asked whether there were considerations for you besides the money. You know, not that not that there's anything wrong with money being the main or even the only consideration, but we always sort of hear about this stuff from the outside, and you know, a player will talk about the school system or he'll talk about whether the team seemed appreciative of him or or the part of the country or whatever it is and you always kind of wonder whether it's that or whether it's just that the team had the the biggest contract on the table so for you what was it well it was i mean a lot of it was about the money i think that mm-hmm. when other things come into play is when the money is similar and you have to pick a place so or if you're going to make 13 million somewhere and not like where you're living or if you're going to or make 11 million somewhere but you love where you're living so 
you know, how much is how much is loving where you live worth or how much is your family being close worth? And, you know, even in my case, sometimes where I there was a time or two where I took the most money or there was a time where I no matter what I was going to play on the West Coast, no matter what the money was, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even when I had signed with the Dodgers, I was coming off a bad year with the Nationals and I was adamant on staying on the west coast because it was just a really difficult year for me being 3,000 miles away and I would have signed with the Dodgers for much less than any anywhere else uh, you know in the middle of the country or the east coast just because I valued being close to home so much but you know if you would have talked to me earlier in my career of course I'm going to take the most money I gotta I mean you you're only in your prime once in in, in baseball so I don't fault anybody for taking the money Mm-hmm. And lastly, I mean, you know, your best seasons came in your 20s, which is the, the case for most players and the way that baseball's compensation structure works. You often don't get paid until those seasons are behind you. And in theory, at least, you know, it works out for some guys who can cash in eventually. But is it frustrating for most players? Was it frustrating for you to be putting up these numbers and know that, you're not really being rewarded for them in the moment. I mean, you know, you you did okay overall, but like if you had been a free agent when you were 27 or 28 or something, you would have gotten some enormous contract, you know, and that's mm-hmm. just not the way baseball works and it's collectively bargained and whatever. There are reasons that it is that way, but does that bother players? Did it bother you? Well, I mean, looking back, you know, I signed an extension when I was with the Diamondbacks that probably cost me maybe a hundred million dollars. I mean, looking back on it, yeah. uh, throughout my career, I would say I played it safe. I signed a five-year contract with the A's when I had one year in the big leagues. But again, it goes into what we talked about earlier, where I never saw myself as this. I came up never thinking of myself as this guy that was going to throw two hundred innings a year and you know, strike out 200 and win 15 games. I couldn't believe that they were offering me this much money. And then as my career went along, of course, I started realizing, okay, you know, I can do this. And, but even when I signed my extension with the, with the Diamondbacks, I took the safer way out. I, I I took the extension. I didn't want to go to free agency and, and being a starting pitcher is, is kind of dangerous. You know, you're one pitch away. I mean, everybody's one, you know, step away from blowing something out, but I always felt like it would, I would do a disservice to, to my wife and family, if I wouldn't take that, whatever it was, 30 million or something and try to hold out for more, I'd rather, what, what can I, you know, do with 50 million that I can't do with 30 million? And I, I kind of always thought of it that way. So yeah. looking back now, I have really no regrets. I mean, part of the reason I was successful maybe was because I was comfortable. I was never really that close to free agency until later in my career. But it is kind of funny how when I was in my prime in my 20s, I was, making, I don't know, you know, what it was, but I probably should have been making twice as much. And then, you know, later in my career, I was probably making too much. And (laughs) that's the way, that's the way it kind of goes though. You typically you get paid for what you've done or, you know, what you've done, not what you're going to do. That's just the way baseball works. I think people are kind of, or teams are getting smarter about that nowadays though. Mm-hmm. Were you interested in that sort of stuff during your career, like you know, being a player rep or paying attention to negotiations or that sort of thing, or were you focused on being a good pitcher mostly? I was mostly focused on on being a good pitcher. I would say um, yeah. I tried to involve myself a little bit with the players' union. Um, I I always wanted to know 
know what was going on. But yeah, I mean, it's hard when you just, I was in my prime. I was winning 17 games with a three RA and anybody would feel invincible. I mean, yeah. you're just, you're on top of the world. You're, I was, I started the all-star game. I was one of the best, you know, five pitchers in the game that year. I, it's, it's hard. You're not really worried about what's going on with the, you know, labor agreement and stuff. You just feel invincible. Yeah. All right. Well, I am glad that you are still allowed to be a public figure sometimes, even if you can't host a podcast. It's good that you can still come on the occasional podcast. And it's always good to talk to you and people like listening to you. And of course, people know that they can find you on Twitter at I throw 88. How hard do you think you throw now, by the way, mm. <laughs> if you had to go out there tomorrow? Uh, here's a good story. So I went... Uh, this is a quick one. About a yeah. few weeks ago, I uh, went to the Santa Monica Pier, uh-huh. and my kids, they saw uh, there was this Pokemon blanket that was the prize, so they wanted me to do the thing where you throw a bean bag and you have to knock the three <laughs> bottles off off the uh, off the platform. Yeah. The first throw, I didn't hit anything. Second throw, I knocked one bottle out, and the third throw, I knocked the remaining two bottles off the thing. <laughs> you and still I, got it. I, I st- the, hey, that's exactly what my <laughs> wife said, and I still got it. And I got the blanket, and I I was on top of the world for like a good 15 minutes after that. <laughs> it was like striking up bonds and, and throwing the beanbag was like roughly the same level. I mean, it's right up there, yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it, it was amazing. <laughs> How fast do you think you lose the, the velocity when you're not uh, throwing all the time? Oh, man, I don't know. I. I was. I don't think I would be. I don't. I definitely wouldn't be able to throw 88. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I could probably run it up there in the the low 80s, though. Mm-hmm. My body. It's what's what's funny is like it, my body feels great now, but as as soon as I would start, I'm sure if I started a throwing program, I would need to be hospitalized pretty quickly. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully you won't have to actually demonstrate anything with the Diamondbacks. You can just no, stand no, on the no. sidelines and tell people what to do. <laughs> so. No, that is not part of my job now. All right. Well, good luck with the job. Good luck walking the pugs on your, your off time. And uh, I hope that you'll still occasionally be tweeting and talking and it's uh, always good to have you on. So thank you, Dan. Of course, man. Love the podcast. Thanks. All right. So that is the end of the episode. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support. Randall Woodford, Christopher Von Brecht, Wayne Goldstein, Steve Cassell, and Colin H. Smith. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for all the suggestions for guest co-hosts while Jeff was away. Everyone who came on was someone a listener suggested. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, travel and weather in Portland permitting, Jeff Sullivan will be on the next episode, which should be up tomorrow, and we're going to kick it off with an email show. So please do send us questions, and there is a new email address for the podcast, which should be easy to remember. Instead of podcast at baseballprospectus.com, it's podcast at fangraphs.com. The old address will continue to work for a while as far as I know so I suppose if you want to send comments or questions about old episodes you can send them to the old address and they'll still get to me and Sam but podcast at fangraphs.com going forward and Jeff and I will both see those messages so we will talk to you soon